0: Angels getting its wings somewhere or something. How you doing? Good. Everybody good. I am going to. Uh, thanks for the kids being in here. I am going to let you guys head off to kids' church. Mrs. Duncan, right there, like directing airplanes in or your kids to kids' church. One or the other. She has got an awesome service. Kindergarten to grade five. You can head out there. Uh, James, middle schoolers, middle schoolers are going with James and Ting out there as well. Uh, So grades six and seven, I think, are our middle school ministry. So you guys can head out as well. Uh, The rest of you, would you uh, take out your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 41 with me. Genesis chapter 41. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair rack below you or right near you. And Genesis, the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and chapter 41 begins on about page 34, I think in the chair rack Bible, if you're looking there. We're going to cover a large chunk of scripture this morning, um, but I'm not going to read it all, I'm going to tell a lot of the story, but you can follow along if you're in your Bible there with us. So we're going to continue in our Joseph series this morning, and it's good to be in this series with you today, Intended for Good. A few weeks ago, uh, when I was supposed to be preaching on a Sunday morning and ended up unexpectedly not preaching on a Sunday morning because I ended up with an unexpected surgery to get my appendix out, I was reminded of the power of different people in our lives, specifically that morning and that afternoon, the power of doctors in our lives, sometimes the power that doctors have, um, you know, that, uh, that day I didn't expect to be in surgery. I just went in and had a little pain, and they said, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're going in surgery in a couple hours. And I guess I had to take their word for it. I mean, I really didn't, I mean, I can't read a CAT scan, uh, and, you know, so they could have showed me it and would have been like, yeah, you know, you can clearly see, and I'd be like, yeah, you can clearly see there's a problem there uh you have to kind of take their word for it. I, I have to trust you know there's a there's a good degree of power there that they're what they're saying is true that they're saying you know hey we're gonna you know well, you got to go into surgery we're gonna take an organ out that we don't think you need and if you don't there's a solid chance you could die and you're just like okay well let's we'll do what you want then there's a high degree of power there. And in that situation, uh, you know, you don't have a chance beforehand to, you know, pick your surgeon. It's just, you know, that day. So uh, the, the nice thing, they do a little meet and greet beforehand. Uh, there, for me, there were no coffee and cookies. But, you know, the surgeon came out and, you know, I, he was there dressed in his surgeon stuff. And I was there lying on a metal table in a hallway Uh, dressed in a sheet with a piece of string, and so it was a little awkward, you know, and he's just like, says his name, hi, I'm, you know, Dr. So-and-so, and, And, uh, you know, and he tells me his his name, and and then he asks, do you have any questions? And in one sense, I have so many questions, and in another sense, I'm like, what am I going to ask? I don't know, no, I, I, I ended up not asking anything, I'm like, no, yeah, Good, I guess, you know, you look like someone whose life I could have in your hands. That's fine. I I literally have longer conversations with the people making my coffee at Starbucks than the person who's like, I'm going to catch you open while you're asleep in a little while. But uh, I I thought I could have asked, you know, hey, what school did you go to? Or what training do you have? Or did you get a good night's sleep? (laughs) Have you done this a lot? What's your Yelp rating? But I'm just like, no, go ahead. Reminded in that moment of the power that is in that situation, right? All the power in that situation. Life and death literally is in the hands of someone else, in the doctor's hands. And many of you have been in situations like that. I want to talk about power this morning. uh, Because we're coming to a of scripture that deals with it. And we live in a world... That is constantly, we live in a, a situation, everyone, that is constantly thinking about and dealing with different power dynamics, different power situations. Just think about the news. If you, if you watch, if you turn on the news, almost every story you see is going to involve something to do with power. If it's Russia and Ukraine, right? You're looking at power struggles and power issues and situations there. If it's China and the rest of the world, you're looking at power issues, right? And you look at the things you hear about in the news. Iran wants the bomb. North Korea wants the bomb. Russia's going to put a bomb in space, apparently. Or a nuclear weapon in space is the latest story. Or China's putting viruses in infrastructure in the country. All these things that you hear about are power issues. That somebody wants power, somebody has power, somebody's trying to exert power over someone else. Candidates running for president. It's a situation of, it's an extreme amount of power, right? Anyone who's running for president is basically saying, I should have a great amount of power in my hands. The story, if you followed it in the news in the last couple of weeks of Alexei Navalny, is a story of power, really, right? You're talking about someone who, who died in a Russian prison in the Arctic, uh, and the power of a nation and the power of an individual to have a voice and to call out sins and wrongs of a nation. Issues of power. But it's not just about nations and news stories. I mean, it's about the stories that we find ourselves in. Nearly every day, we find ourselves in situations that involve different power dynamics. Could be your boss at work. Could be parents and children. Could be lenders and borrowers, teachers and students, team leaders, shift supervisors, police, military, doctors. Whatever it might be, is often a place where you'll find yourself either in the face of power, or in the place of power. You'll find yourself that when it comes to influence, power, authority, you're either in the face of it. Somebody else has power and authority and influence. Or you're in the place of it. Where you've been entrusted with some degree of influence, power, and authority. In someone else's life. And the truth is, for Christians, it's at times like that that we can really find out a lot about ourselves and even a lot about our faith. It's when we're in the face of power or in the place of power that a lot is revealed. And as we continue on the story of Joseph's life, we come this morning to a part of the story where Joseph is going to come face to face with power, and he's also going to become The face of power and in that situation how does Joseph stay faithful to being a follower of Jesus and really the question for you this morning how do you when you're in those situations when you're in a situation where maybe you're staring in the face of someone who has authority in your life how do you stay a faithful Christian Are you challenged to be a faithful follower of God? Would you speak the name of Jesus as easily in that situation as you just did a few minutes ago in this situation? How do you stay faithful when you're in the place of power? How do you handle it well? How do you steward authority in a way that is honoring to God and good to the people that are around you? Are you tempted to mishandle it, to abuse it? That's what we want to look at this morning as we look at the story of Joseph. Because who you are when you go from powerless to the presence of power and to the place of power is very revealing. Who you are is revealed when you are in the presence of power and in the place of power. Who you are, what you put your trust in, where your ultimate allegiance and loyalty lies are often revealed when you find yourself either in the presence of power or in the place of power. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We have been reading kind of large chunks of scripture as we've been going through this, usually about a chapter. This morning, I'm covering four plus chapters I'm not going to read four plus chapters for you. You are welcome to read Genesis chapter 41, 42, 43, 44, in the beginning of 45 on your own this afternoon. But I do want you to hear what's going on. I'm going to tell you the story, read a couple passages that are in the midst of it. I want to tell you what's going on in this part of Joseph's life. And then after that, we're going to look uh, at a couple principles that I think relate to our lives those of us who are followers of Jesus. Um, so we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 40. And if you remember last week when James preached, chapter 40, verse 23, we left off with Joseph, and Joseph is forgotten. We left Joseph in prison. If you remember, Joseph is in prison and forgotten. So what happened at that point in Joseph's life, he had interpreted a dream for the cupbearer, And the baker, and he said to the cupbearer, look, the meaning of your dream is you're going to be restored to power in Pharaoh's court. And when you are, don't forget me. Remember me. Get me out of this prison that I did nothing to deserve to be in. And what happens is the cupbearer forgets him. I doubt he really forgot him as much as it wasn't to his political advantage to remember him. When you just got out of prison, you might not want to bring up to your boss the other guy that's still in prison. And so the cupbearer forgot him, left him there. And that's how chapter 41 starts, after two whole years. So not only did he forget him, but Joseph is left there two more years. Maybe this will be the day the cupbearer remembers. Maybe this will be the day, two years. And here's what happens after two years. Pharaoh has two dreams. And Pharaoh has two dreams, and he knows that they're different than other dreams. He knows they're supposed to mean something, but he doesn't know what they mean. He calls together all of his, um, you know, servants and those who are supposed to know these things, and he asks them what they mean, but, but they can't interpret the dream either. And now the cupbearer suddenly remembers. Because now it is to his political advantage to help and say, hey, Pharaoh, I remember somebody who might be able to help you. Because now, if I'm the guy that helps out Pharaoh, maybe that's going to help out me. He's, but if you read the passage, he's so, um, he, he's so politically savvy in what he says and what he doesn't say. He says, Pharaoh, when I was, uh, I'm remembering my sins or, or my, my shortcomings. In other words, he's basically saying, yeah, I was in prison and I deserved it. You know, remember that. Remember when you had me in prison. It's okay. I deserved it. I remember my sin, you know. And then he says, I had a dream there, me and the baker. We had these dreams and we went to uh, this Hebrew man who was in prison. and He was able to interpret the dreams for us and they came true. Well, it's interesting that he leaves out. That Joseph clearly says, I'm not the one who interprets your dream. God interprets your dream. But it's not really, it's not really helpful or politically expedient for the cupbearer when he's standing in the presence of Pharaoh, who is not only a king and a ruler, but considered a god, to then say there's this other god who can interpret dreams. So he kind of leaves that part out. Just says, there was this guy in prison, they interpreted our dream. And then he says, yeah, we went to him. But that's not really how it happened, if you read the story. Actually, Joseph is the one that went to those people and asked them why they were so downcast. But it makes him look better. Makes him look better. He tries to make himself look good. And he says, he was able to interpret our dreams, and it came about as he said. Pharaoh basically says, go get him. Bring that guy to me. Joseph is brought from the pit to the palace from the prison to the palace in an instant. He's shaved, he's cleaned up, he's brought in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, look, I had two dreams and no one is able to interpret them and I heard you can interpret them. He's staring in the face of power. In fact, maybe the greatest earthly power at that moment, at least in that part of the world, all the pomp and circumstance of Pharaoh's palace, all the people, the servants, and everything. And here's Joseph, just brought immediately from the pit and from prison. So I hear you can interpret dreams. And there's a moment in the face of power, Joseph could say, Yeah, I've done that before. But he says, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I mean, that's a bold statement, because Pharaoh is a god, and you're basically saying, my god will do what your god was not able to do, and he does that right there in Pharaoh's court, and Pharaoh tells him his dreams, and here's, how the, here's the two dreams, and I'll tell you quickly, it was two dreams, very similar, one has 14 cows, one has 14 pieces of grain, In the first dream, Pharaoh says, look, there were seven plump and healthy cows and then there were seven unhealthy cows and and the unhealthy cows ate the healthy cows. He said, I have another dream where there were seven heads of grain and then seven, they were healthy and then seven like wilted and unhealthy heads of grain and the unhealthy ones consumed the healthy ones. And Joseph says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. I mean, he doubles down. He's like, look, God is telling you something, and you need to hear it. He says, here's what he's telling you. You're going to have seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And he's saying, God has gave you two dreams because it means it's definitely going to happen. That's what it means. And then he goes on to say, Pharaoh, here's what I think you should do. If you're wise, you should take someone and put them over a food collection program for the first seven years, and then for the next seven years, they should be over a food distribution program, and that's how you'll save the people. Said, you should have the person uh, oversee a collection of one fifth or 20% of all the food in those first seven years, put them in storehouses in cities throughout Egypt, have it there, and then when the famine comes, you will have plenty of food for the people and even more to be able to sell to others. And Pharaoh responds in this way in verse 38. Chapter 41, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom, and listen to this, is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over all my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh takes Joseph from the pit to the palace, but not only that, he takes him from prisoner to being second in command of all of Egypt. And he does it, and he also says, he, he, I, I don't even think, I, I got to believe Pharaoh doesn't know completely what he's saying, but he says the spirit of God lives in him. He uses the Hebrew word, the Elohim, the spirit of Elohim, the Hebrew word for God dwells in him. He recognizes something that I don't even think he completely understands, but we're told that from here on, this is, this is why Joseph is able to live the life he lives, because the Spirit of God dwells in him. And he puts him in second in command. He gives him the robe. He gives him a signet ring. He gives him the clothes. He, he, puts, he gives him a parade, puts him in a chariot, takes him through the streets, and says, this guy is my number two. You do everything he says. When he speaks as if I'm speaking, this guy's in charge. And Joseph immediately goes and ascends to power. He also gives him a wife and uh, has him marry a wife from a prominent family um, that is in Egypt. And he gives him a wife. And then in the years of plenty, Joseph also has two children uh, with Asenath. And it's interesting, just as a side note, to note the names of those two kids. Joseph gives them Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. And the name he calls one is Manasseh. It says, for God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And he named the second one Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is significant because it should have been that Joseph would have been fruitful and happy and satisfied in the house of his family, but he wasn't. It was painful. And it should have been that in a foreign land where he's a foreigner, he would be experiencing much affliction and pain, but God has made him fruitful and a ruler. And what he recognizes is it's only God that does that. It's only God that turns a situation that should be good, and even though it's painful, but he he helps me forget it, he helps me heal from it. And it's only God who takes the situation that you think is definitely gonna be filled with pain and anguish and somehow turns it into something fruitful and plentiful. And Joseph said, It's God. He recognizes it's God in the midst, work at the midst of that. So then the seven years of plenty end, and there's the seven years of famine. And it's not only in Egypt, it says the famine was in all the earth, which means eventually the famine makes it out of Egypt, because in Egypt, Egypt was considered the breadbasket of that part of the world, and if Egypt doesn't have food, no one else is going to have food eventually. Because if the Nile doesn't flood, and it doesn't have the the, the planting and the harvest seasons that it normally has, and Egypt doesn't have food, then everyone else is going to run out of food, and that's what happens. And eventually, up in Canaan, where Joseph's family uh, still lives, jacob and his 11 sons live eventually the famine hits them and when it hits them jacob is sitting there with his boys and they're running out of food and it's i love what the the line that uh jacob says it says when jacob learned that there was grain for sale in egypt he said to his sons why do you look at one another said, behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy us some grain there that we may live and not die. I just feel like this is like such a, like, dads are dads. Like, wh- you guys are just sitting around at the table, I don't know, playing games, not knowing what to do. And James like, why are you guys looking at one another? Go buy us some food. And he says, go down to Egypt. Go buy some food. That's what they do. They go down to Egypt and they go buy some food. And uh, he sends them down, but he sends 10 of them. Remember there's 11 sons left, because Joseph 's not there. He sends 10 of them. He holds back Benjamin. Benjamin is his youngest son, and he 's his favorite. now that Joseph 's gone. Benjamin 's his favorite, because Benjamin is the son of his favorite wife, who was Rachel, and Benjamin 's the only son left who's the son of Rachel. And he doesn't want anything to happen to Benjamin. He's basically saying, you 10, go. Hopefully it goes well with you. I don't really care what happens to you. I mean, he's not saying that completely. But he is saying, I'm keeping Benjamin. I already lost Joseph. I'm not losing Benjamin. I mean, he's still playing favorites. He's still saying, this guy's my favorite. I'm going to keep him. I'm going to protect him. You guys go down and buy some food. And so he does. And so they do, and they go down, and 10 brothers go down, and they show up in Egypt, and Joseph is over the food distribution program, and he sees his brother coming, and the Bible says that he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. I mean, think about it. He's in Egyptian clothing. He's got Egyptian haircut, his beard or whatever, his facial hair is Egyptian. He's got makeup on probably as the Egyptians would wear. He doesn't look anything like the Joseph. They sold him to slavery, so they don't even recognize him. Why would it be Joseph? Why would they even think of that? So they don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. What would you do? What a situation. These are the guys that wanted to kill him, tried to kill him, but settled for selling him into slavery. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So he has to decide what he's going to do. He immediately kind of comes up with a plan. He speaks harshly to them and he says, you guys are spies. Come to spy out the land. He's talking through an interpreter because he's not letting them know that he knows their language, and he says, you've come to spy out the land. And he's like, we're not spies. We've never been spies. So, But it gives him a chance to interrogate them. And when he interrogates them, he asks them, who's your family? What do you have? Tell me you're not spies. And they say, well, we got a father back in Canaan. we got another brother back in Canaan. And that's the information Joseph wanted. As soon as he heard that, he said, okay, you want to prove you're not spies? Here's how you're going to prove you're not spies. One of you stays here. The rest of you can go back. And you need to bring back your brother. You said you have a brother, bring him back. And that's how I'll know you're not spies. And that's what he does. And Simeon, or or the um, brothers, I'm sorry, um, they start talking to one another. And they say this in verse 21. Uh, They say, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They're talking to each other in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen, talking about Joseph. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So there comes a reckoning for his blood. Verse 23 says, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned from them and wept. Joseph hears his brothers talking about him, understands that there's at least guilt and remorse, some bit of guilt that they understand has come over the years for what they did. But Joseph sends them on their way. Sends nine of them away, keeps Simeon in jail. Says, Simeon will stay here until you come back with your brother. Sends them away with sacks of grain and then puts all their money back in their sacks. Why? Why? Joseph is a generous and gracious to his brothers. It's basically like you ever go out to a restaurant with somebody and you try to pay the bill, and you're like, no, 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 forget it. Your money's no good. That's what Joseph essentially says to his brothers. Your money's no good. No, forget it. You keep it. You take it. He doesn't say that to them. He just puts it in their sacks as they leave. When they get home, they open up their sacks, and they find not only the grain, but they find the money. And they thought, oh, No. Not only is he going to think we're spies, now we're thieves. We're in trouble. But they recount the situation to their father. Look, this is what happened. Guy was mean to us. Kept Simeon. Said we can't, don't come back. We won't see his face unless we bring our brother with us. Jacob is, uh, he's flabbergasted. I mean, he's just like, why would you even tell him you had a brother? What's wrong with you guys? And they're like, he, he asked us. We couldn't lie to him. He, t- he asked us if we had a father or a brother. He was in town. We, we worked a lot and we had to tell him. And he said, Well, forget it. I'm not, I've lost Joseph. Now you guys have lost me, Simeon. I'm not losing Benjamin, too. Forget it. No way. But then the food runs out, they get hungry. And eventually Jacob says, "Uh, go down and buy us some more food in Egypt. They said, we can't go without Benjamin. We're not going. The guy who was in charge, he said, we will not see his face unless our brother is with us. We will not go down without Benjamin. And then Judah steps up. And Judah says, I will vouch. I will take responsibility for him. He basically says, I promise you, Dad, he's coming back. And if he doesn't come back, you hold my life responsible. I'll put my life on the line. I'll put, I'll, I'll you know, I will be his, uh, you know, basically taking care of him and watching out for him at the cost of my life. He'll come back to you. What's Jacob going to do? I mean, if he says no, they're just going to die of starvation. So he says, go. He says, he says the line, if I'm bereaved of Benjamin, I'm bereaved. What am I going to do? There's really no choice here. So now the ten brothers set out to Egypt again. Joseph sees them coming, and they bring, of course, the money back that was put in their sacks, and they bring more money to buy more grain. And Joseph sees them coming, and he sees that Benjamin's with him. And he tells his servants, he says, tell them to meet me for a meal at noon in my quarters. So the servant goes and tells them that they're going to have a meal with Joseph at noon. And this is not good news for them. This is not like, oh, isn't that nice? Joseph's opening up his house to us. We should get him something. Like, this is nice. That's not what this is. This is more like the movies you watch and the mob boss is inviting you you know, to his restaurant that no one, you know, that, that no one leaves, you know. You just, you're, they know this is not, no one else is getting invited to a meal. And they're like, this is not good. In fact, what they think is, we, you know, this money they found out was in our sacks. They think we're spies and thieves. He's just gonna, the prisons and dungeons and pits were usually in people's private homes. So, what meant was, yeah, Joseph's gonna get us in there, throw us right in the prison that's in his house, and we're done. And so, they go to the interpreter, they go to the in between, they go to the steward, and they say, Look, we got home, the money was in our sacks, we didn't take it, we don't know how it got there, not our fault. The steward says, he replied in verse 23, says, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. In, in our parlance, the steward basically said, no worries. No worries, don't worry about it. Your God did it. I got your money. Your God gave it back to you. Don't worry about it. They're like, okay, well, that's not it. But they're still nervous, but they go to this meal, and they show up at noon for this meal. And they're seated at a table, apart from Joseph and apart from the Egyptians. And they're seated, they have, you know, whatever, nameplates, or they're told where to sit. And when they're told where to sit, they are seated exactly from oldest to youngest. And they are amazed, because how would anyone know how to seat them that way? but they're seated from oldest to youngest. They sit at a table. The Egyptians sit at another table because they're not eating with foreigners. And then Joseph, who doesn't fit in either place, eats by himself. And while Joseph is eating, they're bringing portions of food to his brothers. And Joseph instructs that for his, the youngest, now he, the young remember, they're sitting for all the servants. So that one on the end, that one there on the end, the youngest, go give him five times as much as the others so it's like Benjamin is that he ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse it's like Benjamin's at a Brazilian steakhouse but can't turn over the uh, red part of his little thing there right it's always on green so Benjamin's eating and he's eating he's full and they just keep bringing over and piling up more and more food right and the brothers, I mean, they have plenty to eat, but they're looking over. They're like, what is going on? How come this guy gets so much, right? And you might think, hey, when you read the story and you've read it in the past, you think, well, this is Joseph's only full brother, son of Jacob and son of Rachel. It's his only blood relation. I mean, it's just, they're together. They're in this. They're brothers. They're, you know, you might think he's just being nice to Benjamin. That's not what's going on. What's going on is he's setting them up. What's going on is he's giving them more food because he's showing favor to Benjamin. He's showing favor to Rachel's son. He's showing favor to Jacob's favorite. And he's setting them up to see that, look, even in Egypt this guy gets out better than us. Even in Egypt, he's favorite. Even in Egypt, he's the favorite. Look at all the food he got. But they eat and they finish their meal. The next day they go home. They head home. But before they headed home, Jacob told his servants, hey, fill their sacks with grain, put their money back. I'm not taking their money. Put their money back in there. But, oh, in the youngest one's sack, I want you to take my silver cup. Make sure it's the silver one. And put it in his sack. And so the brothers start heading home. The 11 brothers all together start heading home. But they don't get too far away before Joseph's guards overtake him and say, You know, what are you doing? You're stealing from my master. And just, We didn't steal. Look, we brought back the money that was given to us. We brought even more money back. We are not thieves. In fact, they say, if, if what you say is true, if someone has that, then, then they forfeit their life. You can kill them. And the servant says, okay. No, no, we don't have to go that far. Uh, if someone has it, they'll just be my servant. And we'll just do that. So they start going through the sacks, and they start with The oldest. Nothing there, just the money and the grain, and they go down, nothing, 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 10 times till they get to the 11th son, Benjamin. And you gotta think the brothers are feeling pretty good at this point, I mean, hey, you know, 10 down, just fast one, then we're off. And of course, they open Benjamin's sack and they pull out the silver cup. They pull out the silver cup from Benjamin's sack, and, and the servant you know, is going to take Benjamin, and here's the pivot of the whole story. Here's what the whole thing has been building towards. Here's the moment of truth. Because here's the decision before them. You guys can leave. You're free to go. You've got sacks full of grain. You've got all the money you brought both times. You've got everything you need to live on. You can go. No one's going to chase you. No one's going to take you to prison. There's no charges against you. You can go. You can leave. All you've got to do is leave your brother in Egypt to be a slave. All you've got to do is leave the youngest favored son of Jacob there. All you've got to do is leave the one that your father favors above all the rest of you anyway, and you have every reason to leave him. All you've got to do is treat Benjamin the same way you treated Joseph. Just leave him. Just walk away. Let him be a slave in Egypt, and you go home. And that's what Joseph was building to. Would they do it? Would they even when Benjamin was favored with more food? Benjamin's favorite, he didn't have a long coat like Joseph, but he got five times as much food. They know he's the favorite of his father. Would they leave him the way they left Joseph? And so verse 34, I'm sorry, not that one. And then they, they decide what they're going to do. What, what will their response be at that moment? And this is their response in verse 13, chapter 44. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey. And then this is the place. What comes next? Do they turn towards Canaan, or do they turn back to Egypt? They tore their clothes, every man loaded his donkey, and they returned. To the city. They went back to Joseph. They went back and they explained and they pleaded for their brother's life. And Judah says this at the end of chapter 44 Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah says let him go. Let Benjamin go, take my life. I will put my life in place of his. You can have my life. I will give my I will be your servant. You can do with me whatever you want, but let Benjamin go because if he doesn't go home, it's going to mean my father pain and death and I don't want to cause that to my father. And now Joseph knows that they've changed. Now Joseph knows. There's been a change of heart. Chapter 45 starts, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And we're going to stop there today. <laughs> Come back next week. We'll finish chapter 45. <laughs> but here's what I want us to see. There's two things going on in this large chunk of scripture, two points that I want us to take with us as we, uh, as we close out and as we think about this story and what it means to us And the first one is this, when you are in the presence of power, it's the Spirit of God that empowers you to stand strong. When you are in the presence of power is when you may be tempted to not live a faithful life. Maybe it's in the presence of power, in the face of power that you might be. Think about the difference between Joseph and the cupbearer. The cupbearer, I'm not going to mention Joseph's God as the one who interpreted this. Joseph very easily could have taken that approach too. Could have left that out. Could have been, hey, I'm going to just keep this on the side. But he didn't. He gets in there and he says, God will tell you the interpretation. God has made clear the interpretation. How does he do that? I believe it's because of what Pharaoh recognizes later. The Spirit of God lives within him. The Spirit of God empowers him. And maybe it's in your situation when you are in the face of power that you are most tempted to maybe compromise or maybe not be the person or maybe not speak the name of Jesus. It's easy as you would on a Sunday morning. And Tomorrow morning you're in that work meeting. Your boss and other people are in there. What would you do this weekend? Uh, well, I did a lot of things this weekend. Uh, I did some stuff around the house, grocery shopping maybe, took the kids, you know, places. Do you leave out that you went to church? Oh, yeah, I spent a good chunk of my Sunday in church. Those times when you're in the face of authority, eh, you're less likely to speak the name of Jesus. Someone comes to you and says, oh, man, I am struggling. I have this thing in my life and I have tried everything and I, you know, I, I, maybe I got anxiety or I got this and I cannot get a hold of it and it's just debilitating me and I can't do anything about it. And we just sang about speaking the name of Jesus over anxiety. Or do you just say, well, good luck with that. Well, I read this article or have you tried this or have you tried that? In the face of power, in the face of that situation, the places where we may be tested the most. Or someone looks at you and you went through a hard time and they say, well, how'd you get through that? I don't even know how I'd go through something like that. Now, if someone asked you that on a Sunday morning, you might quickly say, oh, God has been so good to me, taking me through that. What about on a Tuesday morning? What about on a Tuesday Zoom call? How'd you get through that? Do you shy away from saying, oh, "It was only my faith in God that brought me through that. God brought me through that. It's in those places in the face of power where our faith in God may be revealed. And I believe in the natural, you won't be able to react that way. But with the Spirit of God that empowered Joseph, that lives within you, that God would allow you and strengthen you to respond in such a way. The Bible says that when you come to follow Jesus, that God's Spirit lives within you. And the Bible also says that that Spirit is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit of resurrection lives within you. And so you say, I can't do that. No, you can't. But you with God within you, you can. Second point is this, take with you is this. When you are in power, so not in the face of power, but when you're in the place of power, the Spirit of God empowers you to serve faithfully and graciously. I believe this is, only, this is the only way Joseph was able to do what he did. Oh, man, I'd be so tempted to take revenge, wouldn't you? I mean, just a little I mean, we have all these expressions, right? Taste of your own medicine. You know, we gotta, how do you like it? Shoes on the other foot. I mean, he's in the place. He can do anything. They wouldn't even know it was him unless he wanted them to know. No one's going to question what he does. He could do, he's in the full, all the cards are in his hand. But he responds graciously. Does he test them? Sure. But remember, at the end, They could have rode away. They would have had the food. They would have had the money. They never would have known it was him. They could have rode away. He didn't take revenge on them. He wanted to know their heart. And when it was revealed, he was even more gracious to them. And you and I will find ourselves in situations like that. You might say, well, I'm not, come on, Viceroy in Egypt? Not me. I mean, there may be some people sitting in this room, you think to yourself, they may be CEOs or own a company or whatever, but come on, I'm just Joe, I'm just Jane, I'm just, come on, I'm not in a place of power. Thanks a lot, Pastor Rick, if I find myself second in charge in Egypt, this will help. But you find yourselves in places of authority. You find yourselves with choices to make. I mean, maybe you grew up and had a kind of a rotten childhood. Maybe your parents weren't good to you. In fact, maybe they were pretty horrible to you. Maybe they abandoned you. Maybe they hurt you. Someone starts talking about growing up, and you just switch the subject because you don't want to talk about it. They didn't treat you like a person to love, but more like a problem that they had in their life. But then later on, they get older, and all of a sudden, they're in need, and they need help. And you have the ability to help. Maybe you've got the money. Maybe you've got the time. Maybe you've got the ability to help. Maybe they're still bitter and cranky. Maybe they're still not nice people to be around. But you've got authority and power and ability. And what do you do in that moment? What would it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus in that moment? What would God have you do? Or maybe when you were a freshman just joining the team, you were treated like dirt. I mean, you were the lowest-ranking person there, and the seniors, the captains, let you know it. They had you picking up all the stuff around the locker room. They told you not to talk unless anyone talked to you. In fact, some of the stuff they did, if it got out, might be considered hazing. But now the C's on your jersey. You're the captain. You get to call the captain's practices. You're the seniors. And In fact, some of your friends that are also seniors are like, oh, good. Now we get to treat them the way we were treated. What will you do? You're in a position of power. You're in a place of authority. What do you do with that place? What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus in that moment? Oh yeah, the new person start at work, and they just started, and they're, they're still on probation. They haven't even built up any vacation time, and they come to you saying, hey, you know, can I get a day off next week? My sister's having a baby. All the family's coming in, and, and I'd love to be there. It's all right if I take a day off. And you think, I can't believe you just asked me that. You knew the deal with this job when you started. There's all kinds of demands. We'd all like to have time off. In the back of your head, you're you're going through all the things you missed when you started out working. You never even would have made such a request. You missed birthdays and weddings and parties and even Thanksgiving one year. And they come to you asking for this day off, and you don't have to give it to them. But you know you're not doing anything, and you could work that shift for them, but you don't have to. How do you handle that power? How do you handle that authority? Do you treat people the way you were treated? Or do you treat people the way that God has treated you? Show them grace. It's not a hard jump to realize the way Jesus lived. It's not far. Joseph was a bit of a foreshadowing of it. Think about Jesus when he was in the place of power. John chapter 13 says that, all authority had been given to him by the father and he knew he had come from god and he knew he was returning to god and he bent down and washed the feet of the men who were about to abandon him and betray him he humiliated himself because he was showing how true power serves so jesus when he was in the place of power he gave and he served And he loved even those who were about to crucify him. Even those who were crucifying him. And he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What about Jesus when he was in the face of power? He's standing before Pilate. Pilate says to him, don't you know? I have the power to let you go or to crucify you. I've got power. I've got authority. I've got your life in my hands. Jesus says you wouldn't have any authority if it wasn't given to you by God, my Father, from above. It honors and glorifies God in that situation. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back as we close and respond. How do you handle, how do you be faithful to God in the face of power and when you're in the place of power? To be faithful before power and empower. You must be empowered. It's God's spirit that lives within you. It's not your natural flesh. It's not your ability. It's not that some people have this stronger, you know, ability within them, and some people have this, you know, oh, wow, aren't they great? They must be, you know, these great men of God, these great women of God. No, they've got God's spirit that lives within them, and you do too. And so as we close this morning and as we respond to God's word, I, I think maybe you're in here and I'm gonna give you a chance to respond as the team sings and maybe you'll come forward and pray because maybe you're here and you say, you know what, you've been in the face of power and you, perhaps as, even as I was talking about that, you said, you know, Pastor Rick, I've been there but I, I didn't respond in the way Joseph did. In fact, I had the opportunity and I thought about saying, hey, let me pray for you. Or I, mean, I thought about saying, you know, God has really helped me, but I didn't say it. And maybe this morning is your plan to receive grace from God for that. To say, God, I, I wish I would have responded that way, and I didn't. Would you forgive me? And would you empower me by your spirit to go forward and to glorify you and to honor you as I go forward from this point on? Or maybe you're in a place of power and maybe you're in a situation where you're in a situation where you have been hurt and you are tempted to use your position to just hurt others the way they have hurt you. Or maybe not hurt because that wouldn't be the Christian way to do it. But just not be as nice as you could be. Just hold back to not lavish grace upon them the way God has lavished it upon you. And no one's going to blame you. You've got that right. You're in the position of authority. No one's demanding that you show grace. But is God calling you to it? Is God calling you to show to others what he has shown and given to you? Maybe this morning your call is to come and say, God, would you empower me to do what my natural self does not want to do? to treat others the way you have treated me because of what Jesus has done for me because of the grace you have shown me so we're going to sing this song we're going to f- and I'm going to if you any of these you're welcome to come and kneel at these altars and someone will pray for you if one of these things or something else is on your heart lord we live in a world that's full of power structures and a lot of times they're hurtful and unhelpful and We don't handle them very well because ultimately you're the only one that handles power and authority perfectly. So we have mishandled it when we've been in the place of power and we maybe have not taken the opportunity to. we've shrunk back or not glorified you in the face of power. God, would you lead us now as we pray? We take these moments, things we need to repent of, things we need to ask you for, but ultimately, Lord, we just ask, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you empower us to live the life that you've called us to live, the Jesus life, the life our Lord has called us to live? Would you allow us to handle these situations that you've put before us in a way that is faithful to who you are and who you've called us to be? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? You can sing and worship. If you want to pray, come forward and pray and we'll pray for you.